So before joining RUF, um, I was a teacher at a classical school outside of Denver. And my first year there, I was invited to the eighth grade capstone trip in Washington, D.C. And we did, and we saw so many amazing things there. But the true highlight for me was standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, right where MLKJ stood, delivering his famous, I have a dream speech. So there's a plaque dedicated to that spot. And I just stood, imagining the 250,000 people who gathered for this moment on the March on Washington when that iconic speech was delivered. Like it was incredible and inspiring. I was at the place where MLKJ said, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners would be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream. And the reason we're all captivated by that speech, because it dignifies every single human life, slaves and slave owners, black children and white children together, not just as equals, but as friends who share a meal to resist the artificial hierarchies that divide us. Mary, Mary sings about a similar kind of resistance a divine intervention of evil who arrives, not through violence or through insurrection, but through a baby, her baby, who in God's unexpected mercy and might descends into her body to bring the proud and powerful down, but also to lift up the humble and the weak at the same time. Because the arrival of Jesus, even in Mary's womb, means that a divine earthquake has hit to remake our world. And that's a mercy for us. A mercy we desperately need at the end of one year tonight, the beginning of another year tomorrow, and on Christmas tide today. So let's, let's center our lives around the unexpected mercies of God found in the sacred child by meditating on two key themes in Mary's poem. So humble joy, and disruptive holiness. That's the outline for today. Let's start with humble joy. So my wife and I have been watching Suits. Any fans here? Too afraid to admit it in public? That's okay. Every, the whole world is watching it, guys. It's okay. So if you've never seen it, it's about an elite law firm in Manhattan that only hires hotshot, Harvard-educated corporate lawyers. And one of the intermittent characters in the series is a dean at Harvard Law, who sends her best and brightest to this firm. So this dean finds out um, that one of the employees there has just been promoted from an associate to a junior partner, and he's the youngest junior partner in the history of that firm, which is strange because the dean has no memory of him. So the question is, how could a Harvard-only firm have a partner the dean of Harvard doesn't recognize? 
So she searches for his records, but finds nothing. So she sounds an alarm to her Harvard Law colleagues, because in her words, there is a potential fraud besmirching the sacrosanct name of hallowed Harvard University. You can feel the smug vanity in her word choice, right? But notice that her disdain isn't for a fake lawyer manipulating real clients, people who could actually be harmed in important cases overturned by his malpractice. Her disdain is for taking the name of the Lord thy Harvard in vain. You catch that? It's elitism. It's elitism. She feels a a holy condescension for the way this fraud has dragged the reputation of her blessed institution through the mud. And do you know why? Like, think about it. If one fraud could deceive not only the dean of Harvard Law, but the senior and managing partners from Harvard who hired him, the legitimacy and exclusivity of their entire sacred system is called into question. So here's the point of that illustration. When God chooses Mary from Nazareth to bring the Savior into the world, Israel's religious elites feel exactly the same way. How dare you, God? Like, how dare you stain your name and reputation with the likes of her? She's not like us, professionally religious. She's a religious fraud. So I know it seems like a throwaway comment, but in Luke 1.26, when the angel Gabriel is sent to Mary, it says he goes to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So I'm from LA. That's like someone from LA saying, I'm from a city of LA named Compton. You get it? Nazareth is the first century hood. Jesus will be born and raised in the hood. And in case you think I'm exaggerating about this, Nathaniel, one of the apostles, will hear about Messiah's arrival in Nazareth and say, Nazareth? Can anything good even come out of Nazareth? In John 1.46. So you, do, you get, now, do you get why Mary is so humbled when the angel Gabriel tells her about her unexpected pregnancy with the Messiah? Because God could have, or even should have, used someone so much better so much more liked, and so much more qualified, but he doesn't. God chose the overlooked and unwanted Mary from Nazareth. By the way, the narrator begs us to notice notice this from the start. Uh, The first angelic encounter in the Gospel of Luke that parallels and actually contrasts with Mary's encounter is with Zechariah, a priest, So he was the right candidate for Messiah's family because he's professionally religious, respected, powerful, and yet childless. So if Messiah comes through his wife, it'll be seen as the reward for his faithful service. But in Luke 1.18, when the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah about his son, John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for Messiah, his response is, how shall I know this? But that doesn't bring out the tone of suspicion behind Zechariah's words. My translation of that scene would be, according to what thing will I actually know this? 
In other words, who's your source on this, angel? Prove it to me. I'm the priest standing in the temple mediating God's presence. Who are you to tell me what God is doing? That's how a religious elite responds to an angel, but not Mary. Not Mary. Even when her pregnancy entangles her in an apparent sex scandal, at best, her child would be seen as the result of premarital sex, and at worst, he's the product of adultery. Like, do you get those are the circumstances surrounding her? But Mary, Mary doesn't care. She doesn't have any regrets about this socially damaging moment that will haunt her for the rest of her life. She breaks out into a praise song because God's unexpected mercy has dignified her life. Mary says, God has looked on the humble estate of his servant in verse 48. And the word for looked on here is often used in ancient medical literature to describe a doctor who carefully examines a patient. So what Mary knows about God is that he's a healer who sees her wounds, the hidden hurt and pain she carries inside of her that nobody else would even know about. That's what God sees. All of those moments and memories in your life you just wish you could undo because they leave you restless at night with the physical ache of regret and shame, like God sees them too, right? But he doesn't expose them. Like a good doctor who touches the scars without aggravating the pain, he offers you relief, gently and patiently soothing your wounds by making them his own. He's the only physician who heals by becoming a sick patient. That's what it means for God to become human in Jesus. It means healing our sicknesses by taking our diseases onto his body. That's why Mary cries out with humble joy at the end of verse 48. From now on, all generations will call me blessed because God not only notices, but favors the people everybody else overlooks. That's what Mary's blessing is, to have God's redeeming attention give her new worth and favor in God's eyes. Because God blesses neglected people like Mary and like you and I, so they would experience just how known and truly cherished they really are. And that's where your joy should come from too. The joy of belonging to a healer who reclaims your past and carries your unhealthiness in his own body so that you would be lifted up to see the redeeming eyes of God and hear him speak words of blessing and favor over your life. Zechariah, he couldn't have that. He wouldn't want that because he was an elite, self-important Harvard Law grad. He didn't need God's mercy to elevate him because he was already enough. But Mary... Mary could have that. Her lowliness, her vulnerability, her modest, if not fragile, sense of self-worth allowed her to rejoice when God lifted her up because humility makes joy possible. So that's Mary's humble joy. But what about this disruptive holiness? Um, If you'll let me drone on about suits once more. Uh, There's another moment 
in this series when the potential fraud the dean discovered is put on trial. And he makes a bold move to represent himself in court. The rationale is, if he can't prove he's a legal lawyer, at least he can prove he's a competent one, and maybe that'll be enough to persuade his judges. So he stands up for the closing argument while he's facing up to seven years in federal prison and says this, the truth is that I am guilty of being a fraud. My whole life I've wanted to be a lawyer so I could help people who have no one else to fight for them, no one who believes in them, but instead, all I've done as a lawyer is work night and day to put money into the hands of rich people. I was given a gift and I wasted it and I'm ashamed of myself for that. It's an enthralling scene because he has this moment of moral clarity about what he's done. His job, even as a fake lawyer, is to put more money into the hands of already rich people. And he's ashamed of the direction that his illegitimate career has taken. So in case you didn't know, we have a theological word for that moral clarity and action, and it's called holiness. And that's exactly what Mary praises God for in verse 49. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy, holy is his name. So I know divine holiness is often portrayed as God's eternal and scary hatred of sin. It's often negative, personalized, and internalized as God despises me and my sin because I'm unholy. Does that sound familiar to anybody? But God's holiness is so much more than that. Here, we get a depiction of divine holiness that's less about anger and more about what positively compels God to advocate and stand up for mistreated people. So notice what acts of holiness are included in, are included in verses 51 through 53. So God scatters or displaces the thoughts of the proud. God topples the mighty from their thrones while placing the humble in their seats. And God replenishes the hungry while depriving the rich. So holiness looks like God confronting injustice from every angle, like a lawful lawyer would, exposing the means, motive, and opportunity of evil and counterattacking at every single level, weakening their hidden agenda, collapsing their thrones, and replacing kings with peasants who wouldn't dare exploit the poor because God takes sides with the weak against the strong. So Mary burst into song and worship of God because of that. The question though is, like would you? Would you dare do that? Because Mary's song is a disruptive earthquake, like if you really take it in. And at the epicenter of it is God exposing and then severing our fatal attachment issues to false gods, showing us that they're futile and giving us what we want. So let that sit with you. You know, let it, let it unsettle you. Because when God topples the high and mighty, he's also dismantling our idols of greed, power, and narcissism that feed those idols. So do you feel those things seducing you? Like if you do, and I have a hunch that many of my students do, like this song, like it's a mercy for you 
because God intervenes to rid and heal you of every toxic addiction because the movement of mercy and grace is to escape the slavery of sin to have true freedom and life in God. At least that's what's implied by the Exodus illusion of God's strong arm in verse 51. The first time biblical poets depict God's strong arm is in the liberation song of Moses and Miriam in Exodus 15, after God drowns Pharaoh and his armies with the waters of the Red Sea. And then the children of Israel begin their freedom march toward the promised land. So whenever God shows strength with his arm, it's not a divine flex. Right? That's God rising up to defeat the enslaving and life-taking power of sin that captures us. Which means Mary is expecting an Exodus-like event to happen again. This time, God won't use a torrent of water to crush evil, but a baby, her baby, and eventually a cross. So if there's something that traps you, something that vows protection and safety, but always brings you more insecurity, empty promises, and cruelty instead, that thing is an idol, a dishonest and worthless replacement of God. So whatever that snare is for you, like I beg you, join Mary and plead with God to show strength with his arm, to sink that false God into the deepest waters of divine holiness so you would share in the sweet taste of unexpected mercy, forgiveness, and life that is on the other side of the river of death and the trustworthy God revealed in Jesus of Nazareth, who is no fraud. He's no fraud, but he will prosecute your case, object to every incriminating piece of evidence there is, and defend your integrity, putting his own name on the line for you, because he's the only one who defeats the accusation of false gods with his own guilt-free and even righteous reputation. That's what divine holiness does. All right, so I want to close where I began with the next part of that beautiful speech from MLKJ, ending that memorable, memorable repetition of, I have a dream, I have a dream, I have a dream. He says this, I have a dream that every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be re revealed, and all flesh will see it together. Which, if you didn't know it, is actually a quote from Jeremiah 40, 4 through 5. And I think Mary borrows that in her praise song. And in Jeremiah 40, 4 through 5, you can hear the rumble. You know, you can feel the tremble, the tremors, and even see the epicenter of the earthquake where the new world begins to rise up out of the old one. And Mary, Mary was the first one to see the new world in her baby's eyes, to kiss it ever so gently on his cheek, and to touch it as she pressed him softly against her body. 
And in verse 47, Mary does something so precious and beautiful. She sings Jesus to his destiny by rejoicing in God, my Savior. Look, I know you didn't come here today for a lecture on ancient etymology, um, but I'm a language nerd. I used to chair the Latin department at a private classical school, so I'll try to get you through this as painlessly as possible. Uh, The Greek word under Savior is soter. We get our word soteriology from this, or the doctrine of salvation. But Mary sang in either Hebrew or Aramaic, So the word she would have used is Yeshua, which is also Jesus' Hebrew name. So when Mary, Mary rejoices in God, my Savior, she's rejoicing in God, my Yeshua, God, my Jesus. Do you get it? Now we get why Mary bursts into a praise song, why she can't help herself, why she just has to sing and worship the surprising mercy of God. She rejoices because her son is destined to become Yeshua, the long-awaited promised child of Abraham, the one through whom God will show strength with his arm once again. And just like God rose up against Pharaoh, that symbol of slavery and death, by sinking him in water all those years ago, she expects this child to rise up against the very source of evil and death itself. This time, by absorbing every wrong into his body and drowning them in the grave through the ocean of his self-giving love and mercy mercy-filled might on the cross. So when Jesus is resurrected three days later, our slave masters are gone and our freedom is secure. This story is so precious because it shows that God is not afraid to involve himself in scandal because God chooses all the invisible and unwanted people as well as the ugly and shameful things in society to secure our freedom. If he's willing to identify with Mary from the hood and her apparent sex scandal, if he's willing to identify with Jesus of Nazareth and his publicly shameful death on a cross, then he's willing to identify with you and whatever stain there is from your past too. So as we move from the high season of Advent, to ordinary time. Like, let Mary's story become your story. Let her humility create the conditions of true and lasting joy in your life. Like, let God overwhelm you in his mercy, defend you against accusations of idols, and elevate you to a place of blessing and favor at his table. Because in the counterintuitive wisdom of God, God uses the most vulnerable and shameful things, a baby and a cross, to free us from the twin oppressors of sin and death. Amen? Amen. That's who our God is, Christ Press. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, thank you for our beautiful Savior, our Advent King, who entered our world through an apparent scandal and left a blood-stained hero. Oh, the mysterious earthquake of Advent and Easter. You are beautiful, Jesus, not because of forceful 
forceful displays of military might, but because of the humility, lowliness, and vulnerability of your mercy and love. On this Sunday of Christmas tide, don't let us be consumed by elitism or privilege the proud and powerful any longer. Instead, fill us with the joy of humility and your disruptive holiness that we might sing this song with Mary, who rejoiced with rapturous surprise in God her Savior, God her Jesus. May we do the same. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.